Well, this is uh, definitely an exciting morning for us. Um, if you've been worshiping in Bracebridge for years, um, you're excited because your chairs are super comfortable. Are they not? <laughs> they are awesome. The front ones are going to be really comfortable for a long time, apparently, because no one's sitting in those. But that's all good. <laughs> Uh, let, let me pray, then we're going to jump into the Word together. Lord God, I thank you so much for um, this morning. I thank you for what you have accomplished in uh, in your church, Lord God. I thank you for what you're building here in Huntsville, what you've been building in Bracebridge and will continue to do so, what you've been doing in Perry Sound. And God, would you just continue to use us to uh, send us out into our communities to live out the gospel, to speak the gospel for lives to be transformed. And Lord, let it begin with us and then send us out as um, as your representatives. God, to see our towns and our communities transformed, changed because of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so, God, this morning, I pray that you jump into your word, Lord, that our hearts would be open to receive what you have for us this morning. God, that your presence is here. We know that. You promise that. And so, God, I pray that as your word is opened up, God, that the power of your word, the presence of your spirit, and the work of your word would change us, transform us even now. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and go to Genesis chapter 32. If you don't have a Bible on you this morning, we have ushers who would love to get a Bible in your hands. If you forgot one, raise your hand. If you don't own one, for sure, throw your hand up, grab one of these, take it home as our gift to you. But go to Genesis chapter 32. Genesis 32. As you're, as you're turning there, there's something very exciting, but also somewhat scary about starting something new. I mean, here we are opening up the doors of the church here for the first time, and it's, it's super exciting, but there's also part of this that's super scary. I remember back to, to over a decade ago when we first launched Harvest in Port Sydney at VK Greer, and, and, and we started with only a handful of people in a, in a very smelly gymnasium, and, and we didn't have a whole lot of stuff. We had just enough stuff basically to make church work, and, and, and it was scary. There were times I remember, man, is this thing going to keep going? Is this thing actually going to happen? And, and, and one of my fears, though, is we move into this place right now. For, for the next journey God has us on as a church, one of my fears is this, is that we would, we would land in a place like this, in a, in, a, in a great building, comfortable chairs, and we would go, ah, yeah. we finally arrived. We've got this sweet building. We've got this nice stuff. We're good to go. Everything is great. We should be able to make this happen now. We've got this. It was, it was a while ago before Libby and I were married. We did an adventure race together, a three-day adventure race. And, and one of the teams competing in this adventure race were these group of triathletes. And, I mean, these guys were jacked. They, were, they, were, they looked like the kind of people where if you were like some evil army scientist, you would create them in a lab as, as, as soldiers, right? That's the kind of people these guys were. And, and they were kind of walking around before the race started. And they were telling everybody, three days, man, we're going to knock this thing off in a day. We've got this. The race started at midnight, and, and, and it was the following night that our team actually caught up to this group of triathletes, and one of the people on our team was a paramedic, and he was being called in because the, the triathletes were dehydrated, exhausted, on the ground. One of them was, was uh, not even conscious. They had to airlift him out because of the amount of exhaustion and dehydration this guy had. So, so they had this confidence about them, and, and their confidence... Turned out not to be a strength, but actually a weakness. 
And over and over again, you see through God's word where, where God brings his people to a place where they would realize that they're not strong enough, that this illusion of we've got this, we're strong, we're in control, that God will do things in our lives to make it so clear that we're not in control, that we desperately need him. If dependence is God's goal, that we be dependent on him, then weakness is actually an advantage. And so God will, in his grace, he'll step in and he'll reduce us. He'll, he'll bring us to these places where our eyes are open up to this reality that, you know what, I don't have this. I can't do this. I can't make this work in my abilities. And what I cling to for my significance, what I grab a hold of for my identity, what I'm holding on to for my satisfaction, God says, i got to remove that until you see how much you depend actually on me. And here's the thing, though, if we're actually honest with ourselves, that even if you're here this morning and you're the most successful person in this room, there are those quiet moments when even you would say and think, and this whole thing is so much bigger than me. And when, when family is struggling, when, when money is tight, when health is bad, when, when we see the, the mission that God's called us on, we come to this place, we go, you know what, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I've got the strength to pull this off. But again, if dependence is the goal, then that weakness becomes a strength. And so what do we want to strive for then as a church? As we launch out this third location, what's our, what's our hope? And definitely we want to be a church that's all about prayer. We want to be a church that, that preaches God's word with a, a boldness. We want to be passionate about worship. We, we want to be super purposeful about what it is to, to grow people and what it means to follow Christ. We want to be in our community, representing Jesus, sharing the good news. We want to be all those things. But under all of that, here's what we need for all of us. Here's what we want for all of us as a church. It's this, that we would be a desperate people. That we'd really believe what Jesus said when he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So what do we hope for as a church? What do we hope for as a people? My hope is this, that we would, we would recognize, we would see, we're not strong. We're not capable. We're, we're not self-sufficient. But that we'd see this, our first point this morning, that we are desperate. We're desperate. As we jump into Genesis this morning, you're going to see how, how desperation is actually this, this gift from God that, that we're going to catch up with a guy named Jacob, but you can read all through Scripture and you'll see all the way through God's Word, there's, there's full of desperate people. You see the Israelites coming up to the Red Sea in front of them with Pharaoh's army coming behind them, desperate. You see Jehoshaphat, a king who's surrounded by, by hordes of armies coming to, to take him out, and, and he prays this prayer. He says, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you, Lord. A prayer of desperation. You see Peter sinking in the water. He jumps out of the boat to, to walk on the water to be with Jesus. He looks around and goes, man, I can't do this. People don't walk on water. He begins to sink and he cries out, Jesus, save me. Desperate. I mean, the, the whole storyline of God's word is a desperate people crying out to God for help. The whole beginning point for actually coming to Christ, to becoming a Christian, to knowing him, to be transformed by him, the whole way you come to Christ in the first place is to come in desperation. Where you realize I'm lost, I'm blind, I, I, I'm alone, I'm, I'm sinful, I can't save myself, I've tried and tried, but I've failed and failed. Jesus, I have nothing, I need you. 
That, that's what it really means. Boil down. That's what it means to become a Christ follower, to get to that point. It's not about striving harder. It's not about having a better life. It's seeing, God, you are holy and perfect and righteous and just, and you demand that I'm holy as well for me to be with you. That my sin leads to death. And we fall down in exhaustion. We say, God, I can't do this. I can't be holy. I need a Savior. Maybe you're checking out this whole church thing because we just launched this thing. You're like, yeah, man, I get that. Man, I'm exhausted in trying to live this life. Man, I can't do it. If you were to, to poke into my life, you would see that I'm a wreck. Or, or maybe maybe on the outside, you're like, yeah, man, I, I can do it for a while. Man, I'm just like one of those triathletes. I, I can look good, but then when you poke inside, when you start to look in on my life, my heart, in those quiet moments, man, I'm done. Listen, listen, there's hope. And it starts with this desperate call, Jesus, I need you. I need your work on my behalf. I, uh, I can't be perfect, and, and so I stand under God's righteous judgment. But Jesus, you were perfect. And then you took the penalty for my sin and the brokenness that it causes, and, and you took all that as you, as you died on the cross for me, as you were separated from God for me, the separation of death that I deserved, and then you rose from the dead, from the dead and you conquered sin, you conquered death. And, and so in desperation, you see all that, and you say, I need you, Jesus. That's desperation, and it's, it's this open door to God's grace, and, and you become a Christian realizing that you're desperate. And everybody in this room who right now is a Christ follower, that's the way it began. And you said, I can't save myself. I, I need a rescuer, and that rescuer is Jesus Christ. We begin this life in desperation. But here's the thing, that's not just the beginning of the Christian life. Listen, desperation, crying out to God is actually the normal way of life for a Christian. Like C.S. Lewis said it this way, he says, God cannot bless us until he has us. When we try to keep with us an area that's our own, we try to keep an area of death. He says this, therefore in love, God claims all. There is no bargaining with him. I don't know about you, but my life tends to drift away from desperation. My life drifts towards self-sufficiency. And, and where I'm self-sufficient, I mean, you, you can see in a lot of her ways and a lot of her people, you, you can see self-sufficiency in, in sort of a, what you call a high pride, where you say, man, I got this. I can nail this. I can do this on my own. Or you see self-sufficiency in, in comfort craving, idle grasping, clinging on to things, saying, man, I need this. I'll do anything to keep this. You see it in fear. I don't trust God to take care of this. If I don't do this, then I'll be lost. Or maybe it's not high pride, you see it. Maybe it's a low pride, and there's this, this anxiety and brokenness about you, and, and, and you're like, man, I, I believe this whole thing rests on me, and so you're, you're battling either anxiety or you're battling control or you're battling both at the same time, trying to do it on your own, and it all comes down to this, us putting our hope that we can solve our own problems, that, that I can figure my own way out, that I can trust myself. I'm not trusting God's sovereign care. Trusting God's grace. And then what happens? A crisis comes into our life. And now God has our attention. And I'm like, man, man I, I need help now. If things aren't so comfortable now, and we become desperate. So what I want to do over the next three Sundays is just unpack what does it mean to be desperate people? 
Some of you might be here and you're like, man, good, because that's where I am. Like, I know where I'm at. I'm at rock bottom. I'm hoping that throughout this three-part series, you're going to be encouraged. You're going to be equipped. For others, maybe more of us here, I hope that this series will shine a light on the reality of our natural tendency to drift towards self-sufficiency away from desperation. So for all of us, really this, this series, it's, it's a place where we want to start as a church, but it's also a place for each one of us as Christ followers to be in this place where God says, okay, now that you're here, now that you're finally desperate for me, now I can do something. All right, if there's a need for desperation, how does God get us there? I want to look, us to look at the life of Jacob real quick this morning and, and just see how God got this guy to this place of desperation, to a place where he literally wrestled with God. And how it changed him. It changed his identity. It changed how he lived his life. He walked with a limp for the rest of his life. And it's a, a huge moment for Jacob, but it's also a, a picture for us as well. Where God meets us like he met, met Jacob. God meets us in these, these difficult times. And as, as hard as it is to be brought to this place of total desperation. Listen, the desperation that we find ourselves in at times is a gift from God. It's, it's an act of God's grace because when we come to this place of being desperate for God, we're changed forever. So, so if you have your Bibles open to Genesis 32, look at verse 22. It says, that same night he, talking about Jacob, arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 children. He crossed the ford of, of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had. Verse 24 says, and Jacob was left alone. And what's going on here? We've, we've jumped into the middle of the story here. So if you're just kind of jumping in, you're like, well, what's happening here? Like, if, if this is a movie plan, you'd be coming in halfway through, and there'd be this dark, ominous scene where there's this tense music as, as Jacob taking his family across. He's not going for a picnic doing this, all right? There's something dangerous going on here. How did he get to here? Well, he, here's, here's what led to this moment. Jacob, maybe like a lot of us here, he's got a family history with a bunch of dysfunction. Right? He... he Never embraced this idea of being desperate. Jacob was the kind of guy who was always in control. And he was a kind of a conniver and a deceiver. He, he would manipulate to make sure he was in control. His name actually means deceiver, and he lived up to that name. Well, let me catch you up. He had an older brother, a twin brother named Esau. And, and it was years ago before this night that he had cheated Esau out of his birthright. Now, what's that mean? It means the oldest child in a Hebrew family, the oldest child in this time, they would get the birthright, which meant they got two-thirds of the inheritance, and the rest divided up amongst the rest of the kids. There's a bunch of firstborns in the room going, I think I like the Old Testament. We should go back to that, right? <laughs> so for, for Esau, what it meant, Jacob actually tricked him out of the blessing given to him, tricked him out of the blessing that was actually not just this inheritance, but a blessing that would be given to his grandfather Abraham when God said, hey, from your family will come the Messiah. So here there are these twins. Now, they're not identical twins. Esau was kind of the manly man. He was, he was huge. He was hairy. He hunted for food. He had a subscription to, to guns and ammo. He looked like a Duck Dynasty kind of guy. Like, that's who Esau was, right? Now, Jacob was a little different. Jacob was more of a, a homebody. He spent most of his time with his mom. He had hand moisturizers and pictures to count, right? Like, that's kind of that's where he was at, right? <laughs> so, so 
one day Esau rolls in from hunting, and he's been out hunting uh, for a long time, so long that he's starving, he's so hungry. He rolls in, and there's Jacob cooking, because that's what Jacob liked to do, right? He's cooking away, and Esau rolls in, and, and he says, man, I'm starving. Give me some of that stew. Now, Jacob, the, the manipulator, the deceiver, he sees an opportunity. He goes, tell you what, I'll give you some of the stew if you give me your birthright. Esau, he was kind of about the short-term gain. He didn't really think of the long-term consequences, right? And he's like, man, if I die of starvation, what good is this stupid birthright? Just give me the stew. You can have my birthright. Right? And later on, Jacob and his mom, they pull off this crazy plan to, to really solidify this whole birthright deal. And, and as, as Jacob and Esau's dad, Isaac, is dying, and he, he says, send me Esau so I can bless him. I can pass on my blessing. And what do they do? They, they, they hatch this plan where, where he says, go get Esau and have him hunt some venison and bring me the venison. Then I want to bless him. So Jacob and his mom go to the freezer. They get a, a piece of venison out. They thaw it out. They bring it over, right? He gets dressed up to look like Esau because Isaac's going blind now. And Isaac blesses Jacob. Esau finds out everybody's not so happy. There's, a, there's something about Hebrews a blessing, a Hebrew blessing, where you, you can't take it back, you can't renege it. I don't know, they say, they say pinky swear, no take backs, touch blue, make it true. That's it. In Hebrew, I don't know how it's said, but that's kind of, okay, that's not true. But for some reason, what was done was done, all right? There wasn't taking it back. And, and Esau, he's pretty cheesy about this. He's not so happy about this. In fact, he actually says, after dad dies, and there's a time of mourning for dad dying, I'm killing Jacob. Now, Jacob hears this and he runs. And he runs. He's been gone for about 30 years now. But if you track Jacob's life, he's lived the same kind of life as he did when he was at home. He was always scheming, always figuring out a way to get the upper hand, usually, usually using deceit to do it. And now 30 years goes by. And God says to Jacob, I want you to go home. Go back to Canaan. He's on his way back, and, and I think he's coming back hoping to have reconciliation with his, with his brother Esau. Because if you look at verse 3 of chapter 32, look what it says. And, and Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my lord Esau. Thus says your servant, Jacob. He's kind of putting himself in a lower place, kind of conniving a little bit, right? He says, I've sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, female servants. I've sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. What happens? Verse 6. And the messengers return to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he's coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. Now Jacob hears that, and that's terrifying news, right? You, you don't roll in with 400 guys to throw a welcome home party for your brother, right? They're, they're coming in with what? With, with probably intention to say, I'm taking this guy out. I'm bringing uh, an army with me. Verse 7. Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. So what's he do? He divides up the people who are with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. Still scheming, right? He's still trying to make things work. He's in a place where, like, it's all over, Jacob. Your brother's coming. He's more powerful than you. He's got 400 men. And James going, I think I can, I think I can still figure this out. I'll divide everybody up, and when I see the one side's losing, I'll run away with the other side. 
see as the verses go on, he sends these waves of gifts to his brothers, giving more and more. As his brothers getting closer and closer, he's sending more and more stuff, trying to do everything he can to win him over. Eventually, night falls. Out of fear, now Jacob takes his family and says, go across the river. In verse 24, it says that he was all alone. Your second point this morning, God meets Jacob when he's desperate and alone. Here he is, he's tried everything his whole life to make things work out for himself, even up to this last moment where it looks like, Jacob, you're going to die. He's still working, working and working, trying to, trying to work the angle to make sure everything can work out in his favor. But he gets to a point where he goes, I've got nothing left. You guys go over there and be safe. I'm going to go here and be all alone. <clears throat> I can only imagine the depth of his despair, of his isolation in that moment. And maybe your life's not been as crazy as Jacob's. Maybe it has. Maybe you've got stories like Jacob would have. And, and, but here's the thing. I'm, I'm sure that, that most people in this room can relate to what it means when you feel completely alone. Maybe for you it was in a hospital room. Maybe you were a student at school and you just felt that depth of loneliness. Maybe it's in your family. You feel that loneliness. Maybe you're there right now or, or maybe in the next few weeks or months or years, you'll get to that place where, where you feel this, this desperation. Listen, listen, you, it will happen because desperation, although it's hard, although it can be devastating, it's, it's normal. Again, think through scripture. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, alone. John, on the Isle of Patmos, as he writes the book of Revelation, alone. Paul, in jail, alone. It's, it's part of the life of a Christ follower that you will go through these seasons of, of feeling alone and, and feeling abandoned. Listen, you aren't alone. You aren't abandoned, but the feeling is so real. Being a follower of Christ means there will be those seasons of, of desperation, but, but when that season comes, listen, when the season comes, and they will, those are the seasons where... God's grace can be the sweetest. It's, it's that weird, painful paradox of, of where desperation takes us, where it's, it's so hard, yet it can be so life-changing. It's so difficult, but, but I, I know around this room that there can be story after story being told. You stand up and go, man, here's a time in my life where it was so hard, but man, I experienced God in a new way, in a full way. In fact, the Apostle Paul was in prison alone, and he wrote that it felt like a death sentence to be alone. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 10, he said, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He said in 2 Timothy 4, when everybody had deserted Paul, he said this, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. You talk to any old saint who's walked with Jesus for years and they'll tell you the greatest times of the Lord are not the ones on the mountaintop, but the ones in the battle where you see God in a new way. It's why David could write the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. Even if I walk through valleys of death, he's coming with me. He comforts me. Why would David say that? He says it because he said, listen, I've seen it time and time again. I've walked through these valleys before. I see what God does. God's there in the desperation. Why? Why? One author says it this way. Here's why God's there when we're in this place of desperation. He says this, God's attracted to weakness. He hears the cry of the desperate. Over and over again in Scripture, we see God respond to his people when they cry out to him. He says he's not an indifferent deity. 
He's a loving God who allows us to be broken so he can remake us more and more into his image. That's why desperation is a gift from God. It's, it's in that brokenness that God rebuilds us. So, so what happens? He's alone. Look at verse 24. It goes on. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. So this, this weird wrestling match happens. He's, he's alone where he thought he was, and now all of a sudden someone shows up, and there's this fight going on, this mysterious man. Jacob doesn't know who he is, so he just keeps fighting with this guy, and the fight lasts all night. Look at verse 25. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put, hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you've striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face and my life has been delivered. So what's going on here? We see as you read through the rest of this, this story, we see, wait a minute, he's not just wrestling with a man, he actually is wrestling with God. And, and here's the crazy part, God's the one who starts the fight. God shows up for a fight. God comes to Jacob. There, there's something that God is doing in this moment that he's going after Jacob's heart. He's, he's breaking down Jacob's self-sufficiency, breaking down his opposition, taking Jacob to the end of himself, all that self-reliance, all the self-trust, all the self, all the manipulation, all the cleverness, all the strength, and God's saying, I'm bringing you to the end of yourself. To show you that Esau, you, you, the whole life you've led, Jacob, it's, it's not going to be won by your cleverness. It's not going to be won by your own strength, by your scheming. It's only going to be won, God would say, by my grace and by my power. With that, there you see it right there, that gift of desperation. Where God's waking Jacob up, waking us up to what we constantly forget, that we can't do this on our own. We drop to our knees, reminded of our need for God's help. He said, it's how we come to faith in Christ. I can't self-atone. I can't balance the scales of justice. I can't have my own sinful record erased. My only hope is I throw myself on the mercy of God because I can't do without him. The start of our journey with God. But I love how Paul says in Galatians 3, he says, you foolish Galatians. Why do you think you would start the journey this way, but you would continue it in your own strength? Desperately coming to God is the ongoing posture of the heart of a child of God. It, it's that, that little kid walking with his dad, and the kid sees the, the challenge up ahead, whatever it might be, something to climb over, something to go across, and the kid turns to look for his father and says, reaches out their hand, I need your hand for this. Jacob had to come to that place where he was completely broken, dependent on God alone. The, the wrestling match here is a wrestling match of God's grace. My hope is right now, if, if you're in a season of desperation now, where those words wrestling, the word, the word alone, the word desperate, you're like, man, those are my words. Those are words I'm familiar with. I want to encourage you. <coughs> don't fight with God. Don't, don't, don't let it bring you to that place of bitterness. Don't struggle more, but come to that place where you, where you surrender. You say, God, I can't do this. I can't do it alone. I need you. 
And I was thinking of all the stories we tell our kids, the Bible stories we'll tell our kids as they're growing up. We'll tell them stories of Daniel and, and Shadrach and Meshach and, and Abednego, and, and, and they're so cool, right? And, and I love the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're like, you throw us in that fire, and, and God can rescue us, and, and even if he doesn't, we're still going to trust him. I mean, how, how cool is that? You, you read about David and Goliath. This young kid so fired up about God that he's willing to fight this, this killing machine named Goliath. Why? Because Goliath was calling out God, saying God's nothing. And he's like, I'm taking this guy out. There be stories of Paul and Silas, how they preach and sing even while they're in prison. And it's weird how we love these stories as kids. We like to tell them to our kids. But, but what happens as we grow old? It seems we sometimes can leave these behind. We, we move past these amazing stories of people who are all in, even, even in their fear, like, even things are tough, like, no, we trust the Lord, and, and we kind of treat them like those are kids' stories, like, like those are okay for Harvest Kids. Like, like yeah, they could talk about Daniel, they could, they could talk about David, they could talk about Elijah, but, but we don't preach about those guys, right? We don't talk about those guys. Like, do we still believe that, that Elijah, I mean, a guy could call down fire from heaven? I mean, the opposition that he faced, how alone he was in that moment on the mountain. You know what, what James says in James 5, 17 about Elijah? It says, Elijah was a man just like me. Elijah was just a person. David, Moses, Daniel, all people like you and me. But, they, but what do they have? They desperately pursued God. They relied on God for everything. They came, came to that place where, where they said, we can't do this. You know, as the world puts so much pressure on our shoulders, you're not smart enough, you're not good enough, you're not strong enough, and you have too much sin in your past, there's no way God could use you. And then you look at, at the people in God's word, and like, those guys are the cream of the crop. They're the spiritually gifted. And we, I can't compare it to them. It's, it's, it's like thinking I could run as fast as Usain Bolt, right? No, he's a freak of nature. I can't do that. I can't live like these people live in... And when I read in God's word, but the Bible says, no, no, they were just like you. Elijah believed. He, he believed, he prayed, he pursued God with this, this reckless abandon, this, this childlike faith. He was desperate for God. And so when we get to that place of being desperate, God will change you. Here's our last point this morning. Jacob was changed forever by this wrestling match. You see right away, verse 27, his name is changed. His name was changed from Jacob to Israel. His name was changed from the, the one who's a deceiver to the one who wrestles with, strives with God. And Jacob's whole life was a life of fighting. You used to be called the one who fights. Now you're the one who fights with God. You used to fight all the time. You were a wrestler all the time, trying to always get the upper hand. Jacob always trying to get the advantage. Always out for more for himself. And if you ask Jacob, hey, hey, what's your wrestling been? He would, he would tell you over and over again, probably this, my greatest fight, my greatest wrestle has been with Esau. And I wanted his blessing. That's the problem. I've got a, I, got a, I, had a, I had a fight with him. The scripture says that they were wrestling in the womb. He was grabbing a hold of Esau's ankle in the womb. Like that's where his battle's been his whole life. And I've wrestled with him for my birthright. I wrestled with him for my father's favor because my dad liked him more than me. I've wrestled for the leadership of the family. And, and if you were to ask Jacob that night as he settles down for the night before the wrestling match happened, he would say, Esau's the problem with my life. Esau's the reason I can't get what I want. 
He's the one who stood between my happiness, my joy, my destiny, my identity, my purpose. And now God steps in and goes, no, no, Jacob. Your whole life you've actually been wrestling with me. You, you thought tomorrow was going to be the big battle? No, the big battle happens tonight. You and me, this is the fight. Because the problem beneath all these problems that you're wrestling with, God's saying to Jacob, you've been wrestling with me. You've been resisting me. You've been trying to find your life outside of me. Jacob's fight through his whole life was Jacob saying, I'm going to be my own savior. I'm going to be my own Lord. At the end of the fight, Jacob realizes who it is. I believe he does. Why? Because it says that the person he was fighting with touched his hip and his hip came out of joy. To dislocate your hip takes an immense amount of force. And the person wrestling just touches him. Boom, the hip goes out. And all of a sudden, the fight changes a little bit. Now, Jacob realizes, man, I've been using my whole life to bargain with God to get what I want. Now I have God here. And what's he do? He grabs a hold and says, I'm not letting you go. I want you. Esau, the, the family, all of this, none of it matters anymore. I need you. I want your blessing. You're the one who I need. I mean, here's the thing with this fight. Look at verse 30, what Jacob saw. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Well, what did Jacob realize in that moment? He said, wait a minute, I've been wrestling with God, but this is not for real. There's no way. Just, if, if, if God wanted to, what God should have done was just obliterate Jacob. What is the God of the universe doing wrestling with Jacob and letting the wrestling match go on all night? Here, here's what's going on. In that moment, God was choosing to lose to Jacob. God should have obliterated him, but, but God chose to lose. To, to why? To, to break Jacob, to, to bring him to a place where he's changed forever. All of this, this whole fight scene going on that night, it points us to the cross of Christ where God, again, where Jesus Christ chose to lose. Where Jesus says, I'll be weak for you. Rather than, than just taking you out in your sin, what you deserve for, for what you've done, Jesus says, I'll be weak for you. I'll take the crushing defeat of God's wrath. It's in these moments of desperation that we begin to see Jesus. Jacob forever was changed. It says that he walked with a limp for the rest of his life. That whole wrestling with God, it, it, it changed where people would see him differently now. He would see himself differently now. I mean, have you not found that to be true in your life where you, you can look back on those moments and say, man, those moments of brokenness, man, they define who I am today. Where, where I saw Jesus more clearly. Where now I walk a little differently because of it. Where I had pride, where I was naive. Now I'm more dependent, more faithful, more desperate for the Lord. And here's one thing I know, and, and we, will, we will either know it or discover it through experience, but man, we need God's help desperately in our marriages. We need it in our, in our work, in our school. We need it in, 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 in our life with our family, in our singleness. With, listen, so my, my question is this, do you have this desperation 
I mean, do you see your desperate need for God? Because here's what I would love for us to do in these next three weeks. We begin to see desperation as this gift that we embrace, saying, Lord, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity that I have, as Paul says, to, to boast more gladly of my weakness that the power of Christ may rest on me. And how often does desperation bring us to that place where our life gets changed when I need the Lord and everything changes in our life around the Lord and then what happens? We get comfortable again. Life goes good again. Things are easy again. And we drift away from desperation. We become more self-secure. When life's hard, when we have no solutions, we, we say, thank you, Lord. No money, thank you, Lord. No hope, right on, Lord. Right Get to that place where we're just like, man, I can't believe I'm in this place because here's what it is, God. It brings you to a place of recognizing again that I actually don't have control and I need you desperately. And what do we do? We begin to start letting go of those things we hold on to. What would it be like as a church if we were a whole church that just lived our lives with this, man, I just need Jesus. And I need his grace every day. Because here's the beauty. When God comes to you, he, he never starts with who you are or what you are. He starts with what he intends to make you in Christ. And it's such good news. I love with, with Jake, he goes, this is what you were. You were the deceiver, but you're not that anymore. You, you've now wrestled with me. And I love that God's going to say, this is what I'm making you in Christ. If God starts where I am, I'm a mess. If God described me who I was outside of him, I wouldn't want to hear it. But let me just read through scripture and see what he does. He comes to Moses and says, Moses... You're going to be a great speaker. And I was like, but God, I, 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 I can't speak. He goes, like, I'll be your mouth. I'll make it happen. He, he comes to Abraham, a person without children, a super old guy. They haven't had children their entire marriage, a sterile old man. He goes, Abraham, here's your new name, father of many nations. I mean, that name was so funny. They named their first kid Isaac. That means laughter. Peter meets Jesus and he says to Jesus, depart from me because I'm a sinner. I'll screw this thing up if I'm with you. You don't want me around you. And, and Jesus says, Peter, you're not a stumbling stone. You're a rock. And God speaks to you when you're dead in your sin and he calls you alive because of Christ. The question is, do you believe him? Satan starts with who you are and what you've done and he defines you by that. The Bible calls him an accuser. He, he accuses the, the Christians day and night, the Bible says. And he, he whispers, you're a failure. You're a coward. God can never use you. And then what does Satan do? He pulls out your life record and goes, see? I can prove it with how you live your life. I can show you your history. And he, and he backs up his accusations. He reminds you of your past. He reminds you of your failures. He reminds you of your shortcomings. But in that moment, you have an opportunity either to be in despair or desperately see the Lord. An opportunity to say, Satan, you're right. You're right. That is me. You've described me perfectly but God. But God, but, but God in his grace, he speaks a different word over me. I'm not striving on my own to try to meet your expectations. I'm desperate for God. Because biblical desperation says this. I can't do this without you, God. Jesus said it apart from me, you can do nothing. So as the worship team comes up, as we think about what it looks like to move out from here, I would say this, maybe it's not about, man, if we had more leaders. 
Maybe as a church, if we had more money, if we, if we had a, a better space, if we had more things, if we had, listen, if this church had the least amount of gifts, if this church had the, had the least talented people, if, it, if this church had the most incompetent leaders, nobody's saying that, if this church had, had no money, no resources, but we had the power of God's spirit, Man, we could turn Muskoka, Perry Sound, the ends of the earth upside down for the gospel. We can accomplish more with the power of God's spirit, with desperate for his presence. We can accomplish more that way in a few weeks than we could accomplish without God's presence, without his power in an entire lifetime. So let's be a church that's desperately on our knees seeking more. Let's be a church that embraces that desperation. Lord, you're, you're cutting out from underneath me the things that I cling to that I think bring me hope. But God, I'm in a place now where I've got nothing. But I've got you. Let's see what the word does in that. Let me pray, Lord God, thank you for the hope we have in you. Thank you, Lord God, that as a gift of grace, you bring hardship into our lives. Difficulties. Lord God, in that moment, we have an opportunity to either believe the lie of Satan that says you're not trustworthy, to believe the lie that says that we're unworthy, to believe the lie that says that, that we're a wreck and we, this is why we're like this, but God, we can also believe the truth that you speak over us. And in Christ, we're more than conquerors. But it's in Christ. Lord God, I pray that as as these gifts of desperation come to us by your hand, by your grace, God, that we would embrace it as an opportunity to press more into you, to recognize more and more that we never had control. We never had enough strength to do any of this. But God, by your power, by your might, Lord, you choose to use a bunch of cracked paws 